Thank you for tuning in to our podcast, Four Seas Around the World. This is our chance to hear from our four Charlies at different locations across the globe. A chance to hear about the different missions at each location. And a way to give our four Charlies a voice to discuss their unique roles at, across the AFMS. I'm Master Sergeant Jonathan Becker, Flight Chief at Whiteman Air Force Base Mental Health Clinic. And I'm Master Sergeant Vanessa Buecher, Flight Chief at Joint Base Anacostia Bowling Mental Health Clinic. Listen in as we get to hear stories about how our fellow four Charlies came into the career field, the different challenges they have overcome, and their goals on where they want their career to take them. We want to ensure people are able to get a better picture for how operations are at different locations and to also have four Charlies discuss some of the very unique missions out there to include SEER, different embedded positions, working at the brig, working with the MTIs, and other missions that are available to us in our career field. What we won't be doing is discussing by name issues with other members in our career fields, enlisted, off, officer, or civilian. And we will not be swapping stories about patients. So please tune in and hear about our four Charlie experiences. And let us know if you have any feedback for us, the hosts, or our guests. Thank you again for tuning in. Enjoy the show. All right. So we are back with another episode of Four Charlies Around the World. It's Sergeant Buker and I here, and we get the pleasure of talking to Master Sergeant Select, Anna Coker. How are you doing today, ma'am? I'm doing great. How are y'all? Well, as you know, we like to chit chat before this. So we had, this is what our third take, trying to get your name right, because we didn't want to mispronounce that. And that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just, we're obviously just talking about this, but a lot of you may know her as you were at the schoolhouse for five years. So but before we get into that, though, why don't you just go ahead and give us a big full on, like, you know, how did you get into the military? How did you get in the Air Force? Why the Air Force? Take us through the story. Sure. So joined the military. Um, I was 27 years old when I joined the military. I was that person that always said, never going to join the military. It's not right for me. Um, <clears throat> and then my brother at the time was a recruiter. And he knew I hated my job. I worked at a car dealership. I worked in the service department of a car dealership. And he was like, join the military. And I was like, absolutely not. That's not happening. Um, I will get kicked out within a week of joining. I'm too old for that crap. Not going to happen. Um, talked with my husband about it. And then my husband was like, yeah, do it. I was like, no, still not going to do that. So my brother showed me a few jobs that the Air Force has. And then I saw mental health. And that job really stood out to me. And I was like, well, you can get me that job, I'll join. I'll sign the paperwork, I'll join. A couple of weeks later, he came back and was like, you got the job. So <laughs> that was oh, that wow. story. And it took about six months, but uh, for me to leave actually for uh, MEPS and basic training, but here I am 11 years later. And just to be clear, your brother being a recruiter, like his numbers wasn't, weren't down. Like he wasn't trying to like, like no. who else can I get in? You know what I mean? <laughs> no, actually he wasn't even my actual recruiter. He was the superintendent um, at the time. So I didn't even count towards anything for my brother. It was just, he, he knew that this was something that would be beneficial for his baby sister. Absolutely. And where are you from originally? Sorry. Geneva, Alabama. Geneva, Alabama. <laughs> We're about the size of, uh, I think, 5,000 people in the city limits. Okay. All right. Teeny tiny place. So you're, how close to home are you right now then, being at Keesler? So I'm four hours away right now. Oh, okay. So that's not that far. No. So you joined, what year did you join? <clears throat> 2011. You got in? 2009. 2009. And then take us <clears throat> through what, what bases were you at before Keesler? So first base was good old Lackland over in San Antonio, Texas. So I worked over at the old Wolford Hall. Um, then from there, I went over to SAMC to the inpatient psych unit, worked there for a few years. And then I went to Fort Sam Houston, you know, still San Antonio, went there as a tech school instructor for five years. While there, I worked at Randolph to get my KDAC hours. And then I moved to Keesler in 2018. And is there any base in Texas that you want to go back to just to complete the full, like, 
never again. <laughs> uh, I did tech school at Shepherd, so I'm good. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. It's like the, what is that, the Spartan race where you get the, all the pieces to the metal and you put it together? You get like a different piece of Texas and you just pin it together yeah. after you've been to every base there. I feel like I got the whole state of Texas now. I'm good. <laughs> um, no, I, we enjoyed our time in Texas. You know, my son was born, born there in San Antonio. We enjoyed it. I just never want to move back to the traffic of San Antonio. Okay, enough said. So take us through, you know, what's life like at Keesler right now? Um, well, the big thing, you know, it's super hot here. It's hot and humid, um, but Keesler is... Contrary to popular belief, it's an actually a pretty good base to be at. I was that person that I was like, I don't want to go to Keesler. I never want to go to Keesler. Keesler is a crap hole. Don't want to go there. Um, after getting here, it's really a beautiful base. You know, we've got the marina right there. We've got the beaches right down 90 coming into the gate. Um, there's a lot of stuff to do on base for our younger airmen, for, you know, our older airmen like me. Um, and there's a lot seasoned. of family things that we seasoned, we'll say that. <laughs> um, there's a lot of family things to do too. You know, even during COVID times, there's still a lot of stuff for us to get out and do. How's, and your position there is? Uh, the NCOIC of the mental health clinic. So how busy are you guys? Uh, we are pretty busy uh, constantly. So between the student population and the permanent party population, we stay gainfully employed um, with uh, corona right now, we are still seeing patients face-to-face -face with the mask, of course. Then we also are able to do virtual appointments where we can have videos um, with our patients and even do treatment team meetings over video conferences as well. So with the trainees, do you, well, do you see like a percentage likewise, like where you see more trainees than permanent party or vice versa? It varies day to day, to be quite honest with you. Um, <clears throat> like our high interest list sometimes will be 50% students and 50% permanent party. And then other times 80% students and 20% permanent party or vice versa. So okay. it really is just very fluid on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay. That's interesting. I would, I would just, I don't know. I would think a lot of trainees might <laughs> come in. Um, what, what, what do you see with the trainees um, do you see like a common trend in anything in the trainees that come? So we do. Um, same thing when I worked inpatient psych over at SAMC. Um, we see a lot of those adjustment disorders, you know, people not adjusting well to being away from home. Or at Keesler, our students can't even leave base right now because of COVID. So they are super restricted. Um, and we see a lot of that frustration coming out because we have really long tech schools here. Yeah. Weather is a nine month tech school that they have here. Um, so we have anywhere from 21 day tech school to a nine month tech school. And then for those nine months, they cannot leave base at all. So it's really hard. And now that we have BMT here for those students too, that go to tech school here, they are stuck here from literally day one of the air force until they graduate tech school, unable to leave base. And sometimes their parents can't even come to base either. So mm -hmm. it, it's really stressful for them. So we do see a lot of the adjustment disorders. Um, very, very um, rarely do we get those that have those more severe conditions, um, but we have seen those as well. So just, just curious. So first off, when did you guys start having basic training there? So we started basic training, I think back in June was our first class of basic trainees to come through. Wow. And then they're gonna have the last class will graduate in November. And this was to offset for the COVID situation? Correct. So we can decrease the amount of um, airmen at Lackland because the ones that come to BMT here at Keesler, they also have tech school here at Keesler too. So they literally graduate Keesler, march across the drill pad and go to their dorms for tech school. Oof, that's kind of rough. And then for some of them, that's like phase, so for um, um, a lot of maintenance, like that's their phase one tech school. And then they're going from Keesler to Shepherd. Right. And I know in my husband's first career field, he was avionics and he did that. And um, I, I think a lot I, from the stories I heard, you're going from a base that's like on the beach and everything. And then, well, now you're even stuck and confined mm -hmm. in a base to a base that doesn't really necessarily have the best of reputation. They have jackrabbits so, there at Shepherd, so that's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
yeah, that's interesting. How how was it whenever you were your first base was uh, you said at uh, Wilford Hall right and you were yeah. dealing with the trainees there too. Mm -hmm. So we would see a very small amount of trainees there. We saw more when I worked inpatient psych. And so, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say so at Wilford Hall. Like, is there a, a clinic dedicated to the trainees? So there was, I never worked there. So the bass is dedicated to the trainees okay. um, over at, at Lackland anyway, we have the bass. So that's why we didn't really see a lot on the outpatient side. Okay. I saw more trainees on the inpatient side than I did outpatient there. Same thing here at Keesler. Um, we have a bass set up here where we have two technicians actually from San Antonio that work here for our BAS program. And we have one provider that's there too. So we at the outpatient mental health clinic, we actually don't lay hands on any of the basic trainees. Okay. Yeah, and that's super interesting. So with the with the SAMC, in one of the other episodes, we interviewed someone that had worked at the inpatient in Travis, and she talked about it being like kind of combined with the VA and seeing yeah. some other, not so much at SAMC, right? <laughs> it's only active duty there at SAMC. Um, we... The whole, I think, three years I worked there, we had one dependent that was there, and she was there very, very short term, but I believe she was there because I think, you know, she had other medical issues that they had to take care of there. Um, all of our other population was always active duty. Okay, interesting. Um, and you said you've been at Keesler for two years, and then prior to that, you were the instructor for five mm -hmm. years. Yes. Um, Tell us a little bit about being an instructor, especially for such a long period of time. <laughs> so I was really grateful. I volunteered to be an instructor. Um, I got selected when I was a senior airman, uh, which is, I was the last senior airman tech school instructor to ever come through. I don't know if that's saying something bad about me or what that's saying. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I went there as a senior airman. Uh, I hadn't tested for staff yet. So um, going there as a senior airman, that was a challenge because I would have students in my classes because, you know, we have Air Force, Army, Navy, Marines. I even had a Coast Guard member in one of my classes. I had students that outranked me uh, as a senior airman in my class. And, you know, we expect them to stand up when you walk, when we walk into the classrooms and they're looking at me like, you're a senior airman, I'm an E6, not doing that. I'm like, that's cool. I get it. But, you know, positional authority. So there was a little bit of a struggle there. Um, but did you give was, them the look at me? I've got the badge on. Look at yes, me. look, look at my wearing, cookie. This is where I earned this. Yeah. <laughs> do you feel that you got that more from the other services versus the Air Force, or a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Usually, um, the Marine Corps students. Um, I only, I had a couple issues there, but after a few deep conversations, one-way conversations, as I called them. Um, they kind of saw my perspective of things and was like, you know what, we'll, we'll roll with it. And I was like, I don't care if you're just faking it, but you got to make me look like an authority figure in the classroom because the other students in there, um, but it worked out for the, for the best. And, you know, getting to have the airmen and the soldiers, sailor, Marines, getting them at that point in their career was just enjoyable. You know, you get to see their minds, their eyes light up when they start to learn about different disorders, um, when they actually grasp, grasp something. And we start doing those interviews and those counseling sessions. And they're like, this is what we do. So it's always um, just neat to kind of see that transition from, holy crap, what did I get into to I'm really going to enjoy this career field. Um, so I was grateful for the time I had there. And even though it went from a four-year controlled tour to a five-year controlled tour, um, I still really enjoyed it and I enjoyed the connections that I made. I still have students that, you know, from my very first class reach out to me and like, hey, Sergeant Coker, I don't know if you remember me or not. And I'm like, of course I remember you. I still have your picture. I have all my students' pictures still. Um, one of my students actually is there with me right now. She was my last class I graduated. Um, and then I have another one PCSing in soon. So it's always good to, to hear back from my former students. That's got to be super rewarding too to see those guys um, and uh, guys and gals um, to just kind of see their career take off. You know what I mean? I, like you were just saying, how many people did you see post pictures with their Kate action? Like, Oh, that was my student. That was my student. Right. <laughs> oh yeah. And it was, it was great. You know, I make sure to always, when I see those things, you know, good job, congratulations. I'm proud of you. Cause I truly am um, getting to see, you know, their hard work pay off. 
is a big reward. Um, I know it's a reward for them, but in a small mm -hmm. way, it's a reward for me because I, you know, I, I get that little bit of an ego of I had part of that career, you know, I had my hands in the beginning of that career. So, and then there are a few airmen that I still reach out to because I know they struggled and I know they asked me to be a mentor for them early on. So I still reach out to them and say, hey, how are you doing? Do you need anything? You know, you haven't called me in a while. You haven't texted me in a while. So I make sure to reach out to them still too. So what do you think the hardest part for you from going from like an instructor role back into operational mental health was? So you got to think from the time I left operational side to the schoolhouse and then came out, we went from DSM-4 to oh. DSM-5. Yeah. So that was a huge transition for me because I was used to writing in, you know, the axes and axis one and two and finding a GAF score and then having to teach DSM-5 and then figure out how to rewrite notes without doing that kind of stuff. Um, I think just being out of the operational side for five years, um, it was difficult. You know, you never lose those skills of talking to patients and getting that rapport built with patients. You don't lose those skills because you still do that kind of stuff with the students is actually doing the documentation parts of it that you kind of lose a little bit, yeah. especially going from DSM-4 to DSM-5. But other than that, I always told my airmen, you know, hey, you got to remember, you got to work with me. I've been out of this for a while. You guys got to teach me as much as I taught you at the schoolhouse. You got to teach me the same thing operationally now. When did the phase two start for the tech school? We don't have a phase two. Or the clinical rotation, sorry. Oh, <clears throat> So we started that um, back in 2000, oh gosh, 16 or 17, we started doing clinicals. So Army and Navy has always been doing clinical rotations. Um, and then Air Force, we just weren't doing those. So our program director at the time was like, you know, why? Why aren't we doing this? Our airmen need that experience, just like our Army and our Navy counterparts are getting. Why aren't our Air Force um, students getting the same thing? Because, you know, it could be rare that they actually get to work in an inpatient facility, but it could be even more of a possibility that when they deploy, they're going to be exposed to these types of things. Um, so we wanted to make sure that they got that good clinical experience before they ever get out into the operational side. So we would take them to inpatient facilities. We would take them to outpatient facilities. We take them to Haven for Hope over in San Antonio, which is like a homeless area. So they would deal with actual real world situations with mental health concerns. So I found it very beneficial and I wish I had gone through that as a tech schooler yeah, to get that sure. experience. So. Yeah, I, I thought it was great. That's really awesome that you were able to see it kind of in the, hey, this is where it started now where it's at. That's really, that must have been unique to kind of be at the, you know, the ground level of that and have it um, carried out. Switching kind of back to what Sergeant Buker is saying, how is it now whenever you're getting tech schoolers or students into your base and then they are in turn dealing with other tech schoolers? Do you feel like it's a oh, I can't believe they're complaining about this, or hey, you know, I can relate immediately to that. So we see both sides, to be quite honest. Um, I see, you know, some of the airmen are like, I don't know what they're talking about. It's not that hard. And then, you know, we have to give them that reality of check of, you probably didn't think it was that easy in the beginning either. You know, we all have those headaches. Um, I think the hardest part for our new airmen that come in is they're still in a training environment where we are. So they still have to mind their P's and Q's and know who's who. Um, even though regs have changed and that kind of stuff, but being able to look at one of our patients and say, you know, I've been there. I know what you're going through is okay. And I got to get my airmen to understand that it's okay to say, you know, I understand that tech school is hard, whether you found it hard for one reason or the other, it's okay to identify that to our patients that are in tech training too, especially when we have nine month long tech training. So maybe not so much right now because of COVID, but um, is there like any kind of special outreach you all do with the, 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 the trainees that are on the base? So we actually still go out every week. <clears throat> every Monday we have IP week with the brand new airmen from basic training. Um, we go and do in-processing with them and we still talk about, you know, mental health services. We still do those kind of things there. And then I actually do once a month for our air traffic control students. I go out and I talk to them about stress management because we know air traffic control was one of those very stressful jobs. It's a 
very stressful tech school as well. So I go out and I do briefings with them every, the first Monday of every month. And then every other week, I go out and do study skills classes um, with those students that have failed test over in ATC as well. Um, and we talk more about stress management, how to prepare for studying. So we're still doing those outreach events. We have smaller classes and smaller um, occupants that we can be at, but we're still doing outreach for those students. And then the first sergeants will reach out to us too. That's awesome. Uh, so it sounds like you guys are definitely keep busy for sure. hundred <laughs> percent. We never sit still. <laughs> um, well, just kind of, you know, looking at Keesler, um, just like you were saying, it's, it's really tough being, you know, for those tech schoolers and not leaving the base. What to you, what do you feel is the best part about being at Keesler? From a permanent party perspective or a student perspective? From a you perspective. <laughs> uh, from a me perspective, um, I've enjoyed being at Keesler because of the connections I've made. Um, you know, being in the position that we're in at mental health, people tend to look at us differently. Uh, I've had people literally turn around and walk away from me when they hear I'm mental health. Um, but here at Keesler, I don't get that response. I get a, oh, you work at mental health. Where's that clinic at? Or, you know, tell me more about what you do. Our, our command here, our wing commander is amazing. She's super big into mental health and taking care of our airmen, taking care of each other. Um, she's even real big into like handwritten notes. So when you do something that she feels like you need to be recognized for, my wing commander will actually write you a handwritten note and then oh, have wow. it delivered. Um, she's that personal when it comes to people and she's a firm believer in mental health. That's one of the first things she did when she came to Keesler was she visited our clinic to see where it was and what, you know, what our clinic setup looks like, what our operations look like. So she's very big into it. Um, so I think having that top level support is a huge advantage here at Keesler. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, anywhere you go that you have that top level support, especially if you need to get things done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for sure. Um, so it's kind of hard to, I mean, you've been, you were in San Antonio. Um, what was, what's been your favorite assignment? Like, I guess, uh, clinic, because it's kind of hard to say assignment when you're. <laughs> so I've had favorite parts of everything, to be quite honest. Like I loved, you know, at Wolford Hall, I was able to be part of the PTSD clinic that we had there for a while. So I love that aspect of being at Wolford Hall. At CMC, I love the aspect of having that face-to-face -face patient care with those patients that had those acute risk concerns. You know, it's a completely different perspective there at Sansi, and then going to the schoolhouse, which is a completely different mission there. Um, and then here at Keesler, you know, I've loved every aspect of it. I can't really say I have a favorite, to be quite honest. Um, I've gotten different things from every single place I've been to. It's awesome. Well, so the flip side of that question then would be, what has big, been your biggest challenge to overcome since you've been in either the Air Force or maybe before the Air Force? Um, so my biggest challenge to overcome in the Air Force was my age. Um, I joined the military. I was 27 years old okay. as an E2. Um, so that and having the managerial experience I had before joining the military, it was a huge ego check for me when I first joined the military. So it was hard for me to have that adjustment of having the airman mindset instead of that supervisor mindset. I had a civilian supervisor mindset before joining the military, and it took me a long time to get out of that mindset after joining, because I was like, I'm 27 years old, you are a child. Um, going through ALS was really difficult, because I was 30 years old at that point in time with a mm -hmm. whole bunch of 20, 21-year-olds. Um, so I think that was one of the biggest challenges of being in the military at that age. But at the same time, it worked for me, because I was able to take on more things and have that time management and the managerial experience that helped me to essentially help lead other people too. Yeah. It was a big thing being older than everybody else. Was it a, was it more of clashing with your peers or was it sometimes clashing with supervision? It was both. Um, I think the peer aspect of it, it was, for me, it was hard for me to say, this is my peer because here I have an 18, 19 year old and I'm just like, I'm so much, you know, different than you and just having to get out of my own headspace to be quite honest and being able to look at someone not as my peer in age wise but as my peer in experience as mental health because 
it was a huge ego check for me, <clears throat> but, <clears throat> excuse me, but I'm really glad that I came in at the age I did because it worked for me and it did help me, weird as it sounds, it helped me to mature even further coming in at 27. Yeah, I, you know, honestly, that that would definitely be a huge challenge because, you know, with the rank structure we have, you have to, you know, follow your chain of command and you have to recognize who's wearing what rank. At the same time, it doesn't change the person and who they are and how they act. So you can control what you do and what, how you respond to that. It's mm -hmm. very interesting that you bring that up and the fact that that happened to you when you enlisted. You said 09, right? Yes. Because lately I have seen just in my med group, the average age of our newest airmen is kind of around like 25, 26. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of what you guys are seeing at tech school too, or, or at your location? We are. Um, so I, every time I, you know, we talk about ADAPT and that kind of stuff with our outreach, you know, we always pull the audience, how many of you are over the, over the age of 21 and that kind of stuff. There's a whole lot more that are over that age than are under that age. Um, so I think it is since they up the age limit now for, for the Air Force, we're seeing those more mature. Because <clears throat> you got to think when we joined, the cutoff was 27. So I barely made the cutoff whenever I joined the military. Mm -hmm. um, and I think having that higher age limit has, we've, we're seeing those more, those more older people start to come into the Air Force, which I think is great. Um, oh, yeah. Had I joined at 18, yes. 19, <laughs> I wouldn't have made it to Master Select. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> Yeah. We say that, but. <laughs> <clears throat> um, what about before the military? What What would you say be your biggest kind of challenge to overcome? Mm, I think before joining the military, the biggest challenge was just breaking that stereotype of being from Alabama. You know, people say I'm from Alabama. They are automatically think I'm a backwoods redneck hillbilly that doesn't know, you know, anything from anything. And then <clears throat> hearing excuse me, hearing things like, um, you know, being a service manager of a dealership at the age of 24 in Alabama as a female, um, I had to break a lot of those stereotypes of, you know, what does a girl know about cars and that kind of stuff. Um, I grew up working on cars with my dad and my two older brothers. That's I learned my numbers off socket wrenches growing up. Um, <laughs> so having to break through that and actually, you know, show people, hey, I actually know what I'm talking about was, I felt like I was having to prove myself every single day at work, which is one of the reasons why I was like, I can't do this anymore. I got tired of having to prove myself every day at work. I'm having to give my credentials and my justification for being a service manager to every male that walked through the door. Mm. Um, was really, really difficult for me. And then, you know, being in South Alabama where I grew up, I was one of the only, actually, my mother and I were the only Asian people in the entire city. Um, so that was difficult as well, having to grow up with that stereotype. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that go into that. And I think that's what really pushed me to this career field really grew into mental health because I dealt with stereotypes of, you know, race and ageism and sexism and all sorts of kind of stuff. So dealing with that really made me want to go into mental health. So that's going to, that's going to lead up to my next question. And that, you know, obviously I have no frame of reference for having experienced something like that before the military or while in the military, but how have you guys, or have you guys seen any increase in discussions or people coming in and talking to mental health or other uh, support services regarding stereotypes, racism in the uh, very diverse area of Mississippi? So our wing leadership has really reached out to all um, agencies on base and was like, this is what we want to do. So they want to do these things, these courageous conversations, as they call them. Um, and we've had the chiefs group actually reach out and have mental health come and come to one of these courageous conversations and kind of, you know, give our perspective on stuff. And it was amazing to sit down with these individuals in this, you know, diverse group of people, you know, there was less than 20 of us in this room because of COVID precautions, but to be able to sit there and talk about different experiences and hear different aspects of what people experience in their life and then putting the mental health into that aspect too. And then they understand why some things happen or, you know, why they felt the way they felt about their experience was really just like 
it was like a huge kumbaya experience that was just, it gave me goosebumps when we were sitting in there with, because we had everything from A1Cs to chiefs in that group. Um, so it was really just neat to sit down and hear everybody's experiences and, you know, have those discussions and those really hard conversations. Um, but we, we learned so much about each other during that time too. I, I've had a few of those here at Whiteman Air Force Base and the first one I went to, I didn't say a word. I just sat back and listened. And I, I know what you're talking about, having the chills, having, hearing that and the chills for, unfortunately, the way I felt it was very like, I can't believe this is happening, right? I can't believe, mm-hmm. you know, you're feeling empathy for that person and just shock, horror, disgust, all the, all the, the feelings mm-hmm. that I felt during that time. That's very, very challenging. So going to Mississippi, we're now, you have the Mississippi state flag. What's that been like? What's the climate been in that area? So, you know, that stereotype is still here. Uh, Unfortunately, it's still alive and well in Mississippi. Um, We see it on a regular basis, especially outside our gates. You know, living on base, we get blinders on sometimes being in the military because we have a diverse population you know, even in my, my work center, we have a very diverse population. Um, but once you go outside those gates, you're kind of unshielded now at that point in time. I had one of my airmen call me one night and he's a black man. And he called me and he was like, Hey, Sergeant Coker, it was really rare for him to call me. And I was like, Hey, what's going on? Are you okay? What, you know, do you, what do you need? You know, I was freaking out a little bit because I could hear the anger and the rage and, you know, just his emotions behind what he was saying. And he had, you know, was walking out of his car into his apartment complex and a group of men, you know, started yelling the N-word out to him. And he was just really upset about that. And then the mama bear side of me came out and I was ready to go over to his house, you know, and defend him and defend his honor and that kind of stuff. Um, But, you know, as much as he he called me to kind of vent and calm down a little bit, you know, we've kind of calmed each other down and even my husband was getting riled up and he was like, I'll go over there too. And I was like, no, 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 Let's be the adult in this situation. Um, You know, you, you can't fix things that are ingrained in some people. And that's what I told my, my troop. I said, unfortunately that stuff happens, but by you walking away from that and not, you know, being that confrontation and having that, because it would have ended in a physical altercation, prove that you are the bigger person in that matter. I said, had I been there, I don't know if I would have reacted the same because my emotions probably would have came out a little bit differently um, because I take my technicians, you know, those are like my kids, you know, I, I take yeah. them and I want to protect them and, you know, sh- shield them from that kind of stuff. And I was really mad that I wasn't there to help him and shield him from this thing. But then at the same time, you know, I was really glad that he felt confident enough to call me to kind of talk it through and, you know, discuss the different aspects of things and why things happen. Because all he kept saying, you know, I don't get it. I don't know why this is happening to me. And I was like, it's not because of you. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with all them. You know, that's their issue that they need to deal with. I said, and had you walked over there, you, good chance, you may not have walked out of there because you don't know what those people have with them right now. So, Fortunately, he's happy, healthy, and, you know, lived through that and is doing great today. Yeah, and that's, man, I, you know, that's fantastic that you guys have that relationship that you, that he would call you, that he would let you know how mm-hmm. he feels. Um, even, even if you're asking those questions, sometimes people don't feel that connection for you guys to have that connection. That's, you know, that's, that's amazing that he feels that way to open up to you. Um, I, man, that's a tough one to hear because I've heard it as well. Hey, even if I'm wearing the uniform, people are still saying these things to me or I'm still being perceived right. as this, this manner is that the, like you said, the moment you step foot off base, uniform or not, sometimes it doesn't matter. And even without the uniform, um, it doesn't matter. I, I really am, am amazed when I see uh, chief rights uh, po or his, his headline, I think at the top of his social media accounts is just like, I am a black man who happens to be the chief master sergeant of the air force. And I'm like, that's mm-hmm. a great perspective right there because that's how people perceive him. If they don't 100%. know who he is, right. He's a black man first. Right. So with, um, you know, thank you for sharing that, uh, 
that experience. Um, and it's unfortunate that you guys have had that with the, with the change of, you know, the, the flag change on base, was there a lot of Mississippi state flags that were taken down around base or cause Whiteman somehow um, made the airman NCO senior NCO page for taking down the different banners that they had of sports flags in the gym or something like that. I, I don't know how that happened, but. Yeah, um, we haven't really seen, I, I'm pretty sure they have come down. Primarily all we see, you know, is the American flag around base anyway. We don't really see too much of the, the state flags and that kind of stuff. Um, I have noticed like downtown Biloxi, you see a little bit differently now. Um, so we have, you know, Jefferson Davis Memorial here and we have a whole cemetery full of Confederate soldiers um, and all those cemetery had Confederate flags on every single grave. So we have seen that change. Um, you know, we don't see those flags out there anymore. The memorial's still there because, you know, the Civil War did happen. Um, so the memorial is still there and those cemetery plots are still there. They just kind of took the flags up a little bit. But I really haven't seen a lot of, you know, upheaval about, you know, let's take the flags down, let's burn the flags. We haven't really seen a lot of that. It's mostly been in support of, you know, let's progress towards 2020 and, you know, make it a more inclusive area. So it's been surprising to me, very inclusive. Well, that's good to hear. Yes. Yeah. It was not the reaction I expected yeah. um, from Mississippi, but I was really happy to see that that's actually what happened. Yeah. That's a, that's a great step in the right direction. You know, like yeah. you said, the inclusion. So I think it's, and how, whenever you guys were teaching cultural diversity or, you know, kind of expanding your knowledge on that culture, I feel like you guys are getting a firsthand taste of it right there at Keesler, right? It's like, hey, this is, you know, oh, yeah. understanding <laughs> this culture on top of understanding the individual's diversity of where they've been, you know? That's right. That's and I would tell my students when we talked about that, you know, look in this room, you know, we have 50 students in this classroom and not, two people look the same in here. I mean, look at your instructors. You have a whole different array of instructors here from all different backgrounds. And we are all, we all look different. We all have different cultural norms. We all have our own values. Um, so I would really make sure, you know, to tell my students, you can't think that your way of thinking is the only way of thinking. You have to take other people's perspectives that they're, um, their own history, the way they were brought up into what we do every day as a four Charlie too, because otherwise you're going to lose rapport instantly. So I think that's fantastic. And I think your perspective, what you just said right there mixed with that mama bear attitude <laughs> is a great way to ask you what's next for master Sergeant Coker. Um, so my current flight chief will be PCSing soon. Um, so I'll be taking over flight chief for mental health. Um, and then in the future, my, my next goal is to get a diamond. I've wanted to be a first sergeant since I joined the military, since I found out what first sergeants are and what they do. Um, and now, you know, being a, an additional duty first sergeant, I really get to see firsthand what first sergeants do. And it's kind of what mental health does. So it kind of yeah. works with, with our career field, you know, First sergeants are about taking care of our people and being there for our people. Um, so that is my next goal is to, after 12 months of having on the rooftop, I want to put in for being a first sergeant um, and then get my diamond and, you know, take care of even more people outside of a four Charlie realm. Like you said, it's like being the four Charlie just without all the documentation or maybe different documentation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> no more alta entries we'll say that <laughs> yeah all right no more altas just piffs <laughs> it's fine <laughs> yeah. and family care plans oh yes those are fine um <laughs> <laughs> So with the, uh, with the experience of the first sergeant, with you getting ready to pin on here next year, um, you know, I've, I've just, in my career, I found a while back that, you know, the goalpost is always kind of moving back, right? There's always something else to achieve, something next to achieve. With, with that, with setting up your folks to kind of take your place, what, 
what do you hope that, you know, obviously that you would leave then with Kiesler, with your folks, as you have, you know, taught your students, what would you hope that they take and continue moving forward with? You know, one thing I've always said is I want my students to, or my airmen in general, to always look at things with new glasses on. Every time they look at something, look at it with fresh eyes. You know, I don't care if it's a process you've done a million times, look at it with fresh eyes every time to see what we can do better. Because what we do is not perfect. Nothing that we ever do is perfect. There's always something that can be approved upon. And that's what I want. I want them to be innovative and say, this is a good process, but this is how we can make it better. Or this is how we can take better care of our patients, or we can do X, Y, and Z, you know. I would find it super amazing if, you know, our, our students care, our, I keep calling them students, if our technicians came up with new therapy techniques, you know, that would be amazing if they could do something like that, or even just how to improve upon what we're already doing. Because um, nothing that we do is perfect, but I think giving them that, that mindset of be innovative, come up with solutions to things, you know, gives them that sense of empowerment um, to take control and to say, hey, we're listening to you when you have these great ideas and then we implement these great ideas. It's like they see their baby take off and start running down the hallway, you know, and as parents, that's one thing we like to see is our kids get up and walk. Um, having those ideas come to life, I think, is a huge, huge thing for our, for our airmen um, and having that support behind them as well. It's great when they have ideas and even if it's a bad idea, I try not to say, you know what, that sucks. Um, but let's, you know, you know, good job taking this on. That's amazing. Let's look at it from this perspective instead. So I always tell people it's called being a psychological ninja. I'm going to tell you it sucks without saying it sucks, basically. Um, and that's basically what it boils down to. So making sure that I'm there to support them and their ideas, I think is the most important thing from a supervisory um, standpoint anyway. What about learning through failure? Oh, I think that's 100% what we're supposed to do. Um, I, I always tell people FAIL is an acronym. FAIL stands for your first attempt in learning. That's what it's meant to do. Um, you're supposed to learn from that first attempt so we don't have a second attempt. Um, and if you do have a second attempt, you know what? Get off your behind, brush yourself off, and try it again because you're not ever going to be able to do something without those failures. You're not going to be able to you know, be the expert in what you do or be able to be 100% proficient in something if you don't have those little stumbles along the way. Just like with our kids, you know, we don't expect our kids to get everything right on the first try. We want them to fail so they learn from those failures. And now, am I gonna let my airmen fall face forward and impact patient care? 100% no. Yeah. We're never gonna do something that will impact patient care. But if it's something that I feel like, you know, maybe they need to fall a little bit so they learn from that mistake, I'm going to let them fall. And then afterwards, we'll talk about it. This is what happened. You know, you tell me what you think you could do better. You tell me um, what did you learn from that experience? And then we'll go from there. And I think that's really a way that we can empower our airmen is through their first attempts in learning. Well, I think that's also important that people do have things that maybe they're not so successful for in their first time. Um, because I also think it builds resiliency because if you always have somebody standing over you with an umbrella and like you said I mean there's there's a line like we're not going to let them harm patients and stuff like that you know or physical or you know mm -hmm. harm to themselves but um if you if you're constantly putting a cushion out for them and then you're not there and they go to fall <laughs> um then, and there's no cushion there. They, they're not going to know how to deal with that either. So I think it's super important to do that as well. Yeah. I'm a firm believer in the, not everyone gets a trophy. Um, yep. I feel like <laughs> yeah. it's part of life. You should fail at stuff. You should, you know, not be great at everything you do. There's always going to be that one person out there that's better than you. And that's okay. Yeah. Um, that one person should motivate you to want to be better yourself. You shouldn't be competition it should be a motivating factor for you. Um, and I think that's what's hard for a lot of airmen to understand is, you know, I hear people say the Air Force is now Hunger Games. No, it's not Hunger Games. It's about being a team. It's about mm -hmm. being a team member. It's about bringing each other up, not bringing someone else down because they're doing better than you at something, but going to that person and be like, 
hey, you're really good at that. Show me how you do that or teach me what you know. And I think that's what's really important um, for us to do, not just as brand new airmen, but airmen with a capital A, to be quite honest. And I'm, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to take that FAIL acronym and spread that around because just like <laughs> you said, well, honestly, I mean, just like you said, what's, the good, what's, what's good about one person hoarding this great idea? right? If it's such a good idea, it should be everywhere. And that's what we want. We want it to be everywhere. So I, I can't now, I can't wait to, to share that with my folks as well. I think that's fantastic. Um, so if master sergeant select Coker could go back to airman basic select Coker, what advice would you have? Um, get out of your way. I think that would be my biggest advice because, you know, we get in our heads that, you know, we have to know everything perfectly well the first time and don't ever ask questions. Uh, you're supposed to be the expert in this. And I think it's okay to look at, you know, look at someone and go, I don't know, but I can find out for you, or I'm not quite sure how to do that. Can you show me how to do that? You know, like I said, I was older whenever I came in. So I had that mindset of, I got to be better than everybody else. I got to know what I'm doing first time. I can't let my supervisors down. Mm-hmm. And I think, me having that mindset let myself down. Um, so if I could go back and say anything to 27 year old me, it'd be, hey, shut up and get out of your own way because you need to ask for help. You need to ask questions. You need to not you know, let your ego get in your way. Um, it was hard to come to that realization that I didn't know everything. Um, Cause you know, I was a big old smart aleck. Kind of like I am now still. Um, (laughs) But I had to learn that it's okay, just like we tell our patients, it's okay to ask for help. And that was the biggest thing for me was to actually practice what I was telling my patients to do. And that was to ask for help whenever I needed it. Well, with your story of being the female in charge of a a car service um, area, I would imagine that you would have had to build that up for yourself though, right? You, you know, you're constantly having to defend yourself. You're constantly having to prove that you know what you're talking about. A hundred percent. Yeah. I would imagine that that probably played a lot into that. It did. Cause you know, I had, I had to prove myself every single day um, at the dealership. If, if we had something simple come in, like a simple oil change or a tire rotation and my technicians were busy, I'd change my clothes and go put the car on the rack and change oil, rotate my tires myself, um, just to make sure I got my customers taken care of. And I'd have people look at me like I grew a second head of why is this girl touching my car? Um, And it was something I had to prove every single day. So when I joined the military, Mm -hmm. I felt like I had to prove myself, you know, I had to prove, yes, I'm older, so I should know more. I should be better because I am older. Um, So I think I would go back and look at myself and say, stop it. You're airmen, just like the 18, 19 year olds are too. And you don't know as much as you think you do. Yeah. And that doesn't ever change though, either, right? Even 100%. as we get older, it doesn't <laughs> there's just all new things that are constantly being thrown at us. And so we, uh, we do the E in the care model of the trusted care of the exercise of questioning <laughs> attitude, right? 100%. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Got it in there. Oh. You worked it in. <laughs> Oh, that was so. the letter yesterday for the, the safety huddle. So <laughs> nice. Oh my God. No, I think it is important even as, you know, as supervisors and NCOs that we continue to ask questions and we continue to learn. Um, because like you said, things change on a regular basis. I mean, just look at how much changed since we've been in from DSM four to DSM five, you know, that was a drastic change for us. Um, and then me not being operational was even bigger uh, reality check for me that, hey, you need to keep asking questions because you don't know what you're doing. Um, And I think the older we get through our careers, it is easier to ask for help, but at the same time, more difficult because people expect us to know the answers to everything too. And I'll be the first to tell my airmen, if they ask me a question, we're like, I don't know, but I can figure it out for you or we can figure this out together Um, because I'm not going to hold their hand through anything. I'm going to help them help themselves, uh, which is what I would expect someone to do for me as well. What about too, like leaving, leaving the instructor world and then jumping right into ADAP and getting your KDAC? That was a challenge um, because there was a lot of nerves for me with that because I literally only had one shot. Um, I only had one shot to get my KDAC because then otherwise I would have 
oh, went over the one January deadline that they had set for that time period. Gotcha. Um, so it was, it was very stress inducing time for me, a lot of anxiety going on. Um, fortunately, the leadership I have here at Keesler, super supportive. Um, you know, Matt Sarn Cardenas was an amazing mentor to have um, when it came to helping me earn my KDAC and helping me, you know, with the case presentations and that kind of stuff, um, helping me with patient care, getting back into that role of being a provider extender, being that prayer professional, um, and then, you know, being the provider as a KDAC, having someone to sit down and, you know, sit right next to me to be like, this is what you did well, this is what you need to work on, um, was huge, huge opportunity for me. It was a humbling experience because, you know, I was like, I'm a tech sergeant, I should know what I'm doing. Yeah. No, in reality, I was a tech sergeant that was basically an airman because I'd been out for five years not doing that kind of stuff. So fortunately, I have great people that I work with here at Keesler that, you know, helped me 100% along the way. Man, that's awesome. And again, that just continues to show that point of, hey, there's always stuff that we're going to learn or situation that we're going to be in where we need to take that step back and say, hey, I'm in the audience, let me hear too. And then step forward and know when to lead um, as those situations arise. So, man, I, you know, I, I know we, I don't think we've met before this podcast, correct? I don't, maybe on the TV. ADAP conference. ADAP conference. No alcohol consumption goes on during the conferences so that wouldn't Never. be any of that memory any <laughs> means. um but uh you know i again i really appreciate you coming on here sharing your experiences um i've learned a few things not just in things i'm going to take back but learning about you and your experiences on top of learning about keesler and uh, how you guys are operating i didn't even realize they had basic training there ops right now and hopefully that's not a fast one that they pull on you and say surprise it's going past november um, but thank you so much for your time today ma'am I, I really appreciate it i really appreciate you sharing the stories uh, sharing sharing your experiences um and it, you know of course for our listeners if they have feedback by all means leave it in the comments let us know if you have any feedback for us reach out to sergeant coke i believe you're in the facebook group for the mental health technicians correct so i am we'll make sure to tag you on there. So if people have questions, they can always reach out to you. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I've, this has been a lot of fun, you know, just talking to other four Charlies is always fun for me, especially outside of Keesler. <laughs> oh yeah. Right. It's nice to meet other people. <laughs> yeah. People exist outside of here. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in and then uh, just leave us a, com a comment there if you have any feedback and thank you again, Sergeant Coker. We appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye.